Join the Beatty Max Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented an American Werewolf in London. Watching it with me is Chris Watt. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Very good. Thank you for bringing this copy of a film that I will hands up straight away admit I'd never seen before. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, thank you for prompting me to watch. What's so special about this film for you? Oh, I mean, well, certainly in relation to uh, great films of the 1980s. I mean, it came out around 1981. It's uh, it's an early one for me, but growing up in a house uh, that was very much uh, a VHS house as well as Betamax, we did have a copy of American Werewolf in London pretty much throughout my entire childhood, and uh, I always remember the terrifying front cover uh, staring me in the face every time I came into my living room. So uh, it's it's been sort of a staple in our family for a long time. This film. I mean, it's it's strange. I'll, I'll you know say admit I've never seen it before, and it's one of those things that there have been a couple of films that have done previous episodes for that I hadn't seen before, and I think I thought I got a lot of grief for saying I'd never seen Blade Runner. Um, right. And coming back to it at nearly 40 and seeing it, I mean, it, that was a film that, to put this, was probably would have been wasted on, I don't know, seven or eight-year-old me, but coming back to it now, you know, Blade Runner alive. Yes, that's right. I'd, I'd say that, too. I mean, when it comes to something like American Werewolf, because it's such a genre piece, and horror was such a, such a big genre in the 1980s as well, I mean, we see it now, I mean, my God, uh, sort of retro 80s horror is, is big business at the moment, but back then I think... Uh, if you're a kid, you want to see the horror movies, whereas uh, whereas a dystopian, uh, brooding, psychological science fiction thriller like Blade Runner possibly wouldn't be your cup of tea. You'd rather watch Star Wars or something like that, I would guess, when you're small. Yeah, and that's, that's very much it, you know, Star Wars and Superman and maybe... Ghostbusters, yeah. Ghostbusters, and, and certainly that my mum wasn't happy that I seemed to watch Predator quite a lot, but... Um, oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> I don't think my dad took the 18 certificate too seriously. No, um, no. <laughs> But, I mean, this, this film, I mean, you know, coming to it now, you know, nearly, I suppose, 38 years later, and sitting down and watching it and, and hearing so much about it and, you know, the usual... I know again Twitter's Twitter in it. Um, sure. You mentioned something on there that I haven't seen American Werewolf in London. It's like, oh my god, you call yourself a podcast? <laughs> um, but I sat down and watched it, and and it had been hyped a little bit in my brain. It was a mm-hmm. little bit like. And growing up, I I never really had the urge or any sort of inclination to watch horror films. You know, the film had werewolf or vampire or something like that in the title. That almost put me off rather than anything. Oh um, really? Okay. Yeah, I, I was you know into explosions and. Chuck, Chuck Norris and all that stuff, but I tell you, oh, this was fantastic. Mm. I I can totally see why people love it. It was just absolutely brilliant. I mean, what 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 I find amazing about it is rewatching it uh, recently. Uh, is that uh, with the exception of the fashions and maybe the haircuts, I mean, the the film itself and the filmmaking behind it hasn't aged a day. Really, it's remarkable. Just it's it's kind of flawless in a way. I would say. I mean, the, the script is perfect the performances are perfect and those special effects just incredible when you consider how much CGI is sort of prol- proliferating big 
budget blockbusters now. I mean, the, the, the effects, all in camera, all makeup, all, all, all just really ingenious. And you can see exactly why Michael Jackson wanted the team to do uh, all the video for Thriller. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was John Landis, wasn't it? I had that. That's another videotape that I had in my house growing up. We had the Thriller videotape, which came <laughs> with that, uh, which came with a really cool uh, hour-long making of documentary, which was really fantastic for someone like that. I mean, when I was a kid, I was I was the the perfect sort of uh, epitome of a movie nerd. You know, like five or six, I was watching making ofs and behind the scenes stuff. I love that stuff, especially the makeup. And even now, as you say, it's, it's it's aged in a way that, I mean, yes, of course, now things might look very different because of computers and CGI, mm. and but practical effects, they they were good, The you know, sort of jumping around a little bit. I mean, the, the transformation yes, that yeah. David goes through the, the first time, you know, that was intense. That looked, they didn't just make it a bit like, you know, I suppose in the closest way I can equate this is Teen Wolf. Yes. And this makes Teen Wolf <laughs> that is a look good comparison right there. Yeah. And and this is where Teen Wolf is very much its own thing, but mm. you know, the transformation for that and I always remember watching that as a as a younger bloke thinking, Oh, that's you know, that must be really weird to go through, but it doesn't yeah. look like he's that uncomfortable. But David in this when he's going through it was in excruciating that's agony. Right, yeah. They, they they play it incredibly real and that comes out an awful lot I think to David Norton's performance as well. I mean he's screaming. I mean his, the bones are contorting and breaking and it, it it and it's all done in sort of like a harsh light as well. So you're seeing everything. It's 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 quite incredible. The one that'll stick in my head, I think was it the second transformation and I think they show his claws breaking through his fingernails oh, yeah, oh. Yeah, that's in, the, in the theater yeah it's fantastic oh it's like something like a marathon man I like, oh <laughs> jesus god now i mean the, the film opens and it's and this is something that you know and again this shows my sort of level of cultural bias mm-hmm. i'd seen and again having never seen this before and i think about six months ago this was on gogglebox where and for those who haven't seen Gogglebox, this is a show where they get supposedly norm- normal people sitting around watching telly and talking oh, about shit. it. So they've got you know people, and it's normally watching stuff like The X Factor or mm. Bake Off or something. But this time they're watching American Werewolf in London, and and I kind of knew that certainly that we had this lined up anyway. Obviously, taking a while to get here, but um, and I watched this bit on Gogglebox, and they showed that part the transformation part oh, on really? google box oh, yeah wow. and it was just like jesus christ <laughs> like... <laughs> that's that's amazing they actually showed that part i suppose i suppose there are, i suppose there are worse parts they could have showed yeah they, they showed that part and the the opening sort of part in the slaughtered lamb oh right um, oh, yeah yeah so they sort of showed bits of the two scenes um and yeah, and, and that really made me want to watch it. And it wasn't just the fact that in the corner of one of the shots, I could see a, a very young Rick Mail, which kind That's of... That's right, he's I playing chess, yeah. Yeah, I had no idea he was in it. I mean, after Rick Mail died, I mean, that was, what, five five years ago. Yeah. And I went on this huge binge of watching stuff he was in and all the various documentaries about him, but I had no yeah. idea he was in this. Albeit That's right. Yeah. He doesn't speak. Yeah, it was fascinating to see him pop up as well. Yeah, I mean the the, the opening the opening of that movie is a, is a fantastic sort of shift in tones because it starts off fairly comedically, and it's one of the great things about American Werewolf is that it balances comedy and horror in a way that no other film had done at that point, and I'm not sure any film has done since. Maybe up until maybe Shaun of the Dead, 
which mm. uh, which I know Edgar Wright is a big fan of American Werewolf, and you can see that that shift in the tone about halfway through Shaun of the Dead, where it does kind of get lighter on laughs and more intense. And you see that uh, from the from the get go in American Werewolf, it's remarkable because it, it opens very atmospherically on those shots of the moors, which I think were filmed in Wales. I think it was filmed in Wales. Those those two young lads in the and they're they're literally in the back of a truck with a bunch of sheep. They're literally lambs to the slaughter from the very first meet <laughs> them. They're, 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 they're essentially dead already. <laughs> I like that. That's good. I, I mean, I found it, you know, throughout the film, I had no expectations as such. And, and I know, you know, we come at this, it's a John Landis film and mm-hmm. two of his, oh, well, some of his films, you know, were my favourite films, yes, you know, absolutely. something like Coming to America and Free Amigos were the ones yes. that I used to watch the most. I mean, it's it, he, he had an incredible run in the uh, the late 70s and the early 80s. I mean, it, uh, you just look at the list of it. He did, uh, what was it, Kentucky Fried Movie, Animal House, Blues Brothers, Trading Places, this. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, it's such a CV. When And then you chuck in Thriller as well. And, that's right, yeah. You know, I mean, it's, uh, the fact that he's this body of work. And I know people, you know, make these lists on social media and stuff about, you know, who had the greatest run of films. But, I mean... Mm. You know, and and this time, I mean, bear in mind the early '80s, and I know most of his films were comedy leaning, as opposed to say, yes. uh, you know. But I mean, this was the time that George Lucas and Spielberg were sort of massive in the blockbuster stakes. But he That's was also right, yeah. going, and you know, this was his follow up to Blues Brothers, wasn't it? This came it out after, was, yeah. yeah. And you just kind of think it's it's amazing how you know he's changed the tone from Blues Brothers to this, but this isn't a straight-up horror film, as you say. I mean, there were parts right. of this that I found hilarious. It's, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, mostly, it's mostly culture clash stuff that makes it that funny. The idea of this, these two American lads interacting with a group of uh, Yorkshire working men in a pub is, just is already rife with comic potential. But the way they play even a lot of the hor- horrific elements, I think it makes you buy it more. I mean, the mm-hmm. idea of like a guy talking to somebody who's been ripped up and is dead, he's essentially talking to a corpse. And I mean, that's ridiculous, but the, the performances completely seal it. I think the casting in it, you know, for the even some of the roles like we talked, you know, Brian Glover. Yeah. You know, if you're going to have a, a very extroverted northern chap sitting there being the boss of this small pub, yeah. he's just absolutely spot on ideal for it. That's um, right. And that must be terrifying in itself. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, Brian Glover was an absolute legend. Again, for outside of the UK, I'm not sure many people have a huge amount of knowledge of who Brian Glover was. Uh, anybody that saw Ken Loach's film Kess, which I think mm. was the first thing he ever appeared in where he played the gym teacher, and he makes such an impression in that. He's only got one scene in that movie, and anything that he appeared in, he tended to make an impression on. He, I, he always reminded me of a, of a northern Brian Blessed. He would show up <laughs> for a couple of scenes, shout... And then leave having stolen the film. He was, yeah, it was so good. I mean, it's funny how, again, we, you know, going to, it opens and it's almost a bit like the, the holiday scene in Withnail and I. Yes. Where <laughs> you've got these two guys who are, I mean, not quite there on, on by accident as, as mm. the other two, but, you know, these are American tourists who, you know, have obviously gone for a, a ramble in the Yorkshire Dales and they've happened yeah. across this pub and, and it is like, you know, this is where it's like walking into a saloon That's where right, every, yeah. everything stops. It's... <laughs> the, the darts stop, everybody stops uh, and looks at them. Yeah, and you get that, you get that one of the first of many quotable lines where uh, 
is it the actor David Schofield? He's one of the dart players. He just stares at him and goes, "You made me miss." <laughs> if if you're not scared, <laughs> then. You must be shitting yourself. Yeah, you walk into any pub in East London, it'll probably be like that. <laughs> and this is the part where you know they, and and again, whether this is an American thing or or not, they, they they're very chatty. They want to find out a little bit more, and you know they're mm. pointing out the the five pointed star on the wall. That's right. A, a yeah. bit, you know, oh, what's what's that star on the wall for? And just the complete silence. I mean, what I, what's funny about that is the fact that they, they all seem so offended that these two people have asked about it. But, I mean, it, it's a five-pointed star on the wall and there's two candles framing it on either side. So, I mean, <laughs> I mean what do they expect? I think people aren't going to ask. <laughs> I suppose they don't get many tourists up in the slaughtered lamb. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the two guys have um, they've left the pub. They've gone, you know, and everyone's saying, you know, beware the moon, stick to the roads. You know, everyone has told them this. Of course, they've decided not to listen. And and in the in the days before Google Maps and satnavs and GPS and all that, it's quite easy to get lost on the Yorkshire Moors in the dark. I read it was filmed, or parts of that were filmed in in London in the park. But I mean, it was still that must have been even darker. I know it was lit for the film, but I mean, walking there in the pitch black, yeah. that's terrifying on its own. And then all of a sudden, you hear these sort of dog wolf noises yeah the sound design on those uh wolf howls is absolutely terrifying it was brilliantly done i mean that that's the moment when the movie starts to shift and you suddenly think you feel incredibly uneasy and the way it's shot as well yes landis uses this very very strange uh, i think it's a fisheye lens he uses at one point mm. and he has the camera sort of spinning around him and at one point the camera stops and they're staring right down the camera as if they're looking at something and it, and all you can hear are those growls and those howls. It's just terrifying. It's just these two guys trapped in this pitch black nowhere. I mean, there's no way they can escape. I mean, I, I always try and think about when, you know, and it's easy for me to, you know, I, I watch this on a DVD in my living room mm. in my house and thinking, imagine if you're seeing this in 1981 in your local uh, oh, Odeon or whatever. And again, this is probably one of those films that massively would benefit from being in a full cinema. Yes, yeah. I think I think it did get a re-release um, a couple of years back to coincide with the Blu-ray that came out. But I, I think that was in London they showed it right. on the big screen. I think it was a digital restoration of it, which would have been fantastic to see. But it, it would be great to see that with an audience uh, who have no clue about the film. Yeah. That would be incredible. I mean, I, I did go and see the the BFI had a screening of Coming to America a couple of months ago. Oh, and, did they really? Um, oh, man. And, and I had a Skype interview with John Landis afterwards. Oh, wow. And you kind of think like, and, and this was part of a comedy, in you know, a black comedy season, so obviously mm. it fitted into there. So, But you do think like a John Landis season, oh, I mean, that would be amazing. When you think about 80s films, I mean, there's a any time you think about that uh, particular decade there's always one or two John Landis films in there because he he was that distinctive and I think I mean it's not something I guess it's beyond me but I'm sure the BFI or the Prince Charles cinema would be uh, up for that but we have Jack is mauled to supposedly to death by the yeah. the wolf or the whatever i mean we get all sorts of descriptions you know that the locals rock up as the the werewolf attacks david and and save him as such yes, yeah. but um you know they arrive with their their shotguns doing nothing for the uh yorkshire stereotype of no not at all you know that, they that, had flat claps <laughs> that scene i think is incredible in that 
it, ma it manages to switch to all-out horror so quickly. And that is all down to Griffin Dunn's performance. In that moment when he is being torn apart, he sells that so strongly. I mean, his screams, uh, oh my goodness, it's, it's incredible how quickly it shocks you. Mm. And you don't see a huge amount, but... Uh, it's mostly his screams. I, I, God, I can hear them now in my head. It's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny as well because while he's supposedly mauled by the wolf, he that's not his final scene in the film. That's um, right, yeah. And, and part of the... Well, one of the things I liked about it was he he pops up another three or four times throughout and yeah. he's in a you know he's in a further state of decay that's right yeah he keeps getting further and further into <laughs> decomposing yeah and because he's essentially because i mean this maybe this is a mythology thing where if you're killed by a werewolf you don't really die you're in limbo that's right yeah david wakes up in the hospital and jack pops up there and he you know and he's still bloody still gory yeah. bits hanging off and by the time we see him for the final time he's essentially you know, rotting away and he's a you know, skeleton that, i think isn't yeah <laughs> pretty much yeah he's, that, that's purely almost all puppet or yeah. certainly a good, a good mask anyway but you know there's a point when david survives this mauling he's got some nasty scars on his chest and his face but he wakes up in hospital and he's being seen to by uh, jenny agatha and you suddenly get quite jealous yeah, uh, yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah you, 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 you almost get the feeling. I, I, I think I would take a mauling from a werewolf to find yourself in that situation. Jenny Agatha <laughs> and uh, and Frank Oz popping in as well. Help you again? Yes. Mm. Yeah, maybe not Frank Oz, but uh, <laughs> and, and 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 two really awful detectives as well. Oh, yeah. uh, played by Don, Don McKillop, who's the serious one, and you've got Paul Kember. Uh, was the name of the actor who played just the dumbest detective. He kept like, he's like knocking stuff over. He's saying the wrong things. He, it was wonderful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Frank Oz popping up there as I think he's like the uh, is he the U.S. Embassy? Yeah, he's like the, from the consulate. Yeah. Yeah, and and <laughs> he he doesn't really seem to understand why David's so distressed when he finds <laughs> out that Jack's been killed, and he's like, oh goddamn punk kids that appreciate anything you do. I wonder if I've missed something because uh, maybe there's some link between Landis and Oz. Because um... there is, there is a link okay. between the two of them. Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was a there was a sort of tenuous link from uh, his time on the Muppets. I right. Think Landis, okay. I think Landis had something to do with the Muppets somewhere down the line, or he was certainly friends with Jim Henson. But I mean, Frank Oz ter turns up in most of uh, Landis's films hmm. somewhere along the line. Yeah, because he had the small cameo in Trading Places. He was the sort of uh, the bookish, right. bookish cop when Ackroyd was getting booked in. That's right, and he's in Blues Brothers as well. Yeah. Uh, whenever Belushi's being discharged at the beginning. <laughs> yeah, and of course he gets a second credit later on because there's a scene where uh, they're watching the Muppets. That's right, yes. <laughs> So I wonder if he got two paychecks for that. Who knows? Uh, I, I would imagine he got no paycheck for that. <laughs> he, maybe got, he maybe got a trip to London. Although I think Frank Oz was based in London because that's where Jim Henson's workshop was. Yeah, and I guess this time, this, I mean, this, so I mean, this film came out eighty one, um, and apparently a lot of the there, there were some issues. I did do some reading, and I know you shouldn't take IMDb on face value, but um, mm. there were some because this time, and we've talked about it on previous episodes, the amount of American actors and film crew people who lived in and around london at the time yes when this was the time that star wars was out superman obviously frank oz was you know in, in empire strikes back that's right um, so i guess they didn't need to bring over too many people because most american people were probably here anyway 
That's right. I think there was certain. I remember Landis mentioning on. Uh, I think it's on one of the DVD extras. There was some sort of tax incentive about mm. working there because I think I, I think originally he wasn't going to set American Wolf in London in London. It was going to be another city. I'm not sure if that's a hundred percent true, but because of tax breaks and things like that, it uh, it got uh, moved in location. Would have been an odd title if it had been American Werewolf in London. It had been set in Coventry or something. That's very true. American, <laughs> American Werewolf in Glasgow would have been interesting. Yeah, I'd I'd watch that. I would watch that. I don't think the werewolf would last very long. No, but uh, <laughs> I suppose now Glasgow's a lot more uh, well to do. I suppose, isn't it? it so is, it dep- yeah. depends which part you land in. True, American <laughs> Werewolf in uh, Govan. Yeah, stick them in the gorbals, see how long And while David's in hospital, he starts having these dreams of essentially running through the woods and and eating deer and stuff. And this is the kind of first indication that, you know, thing he he may not be that lucky or fortunate after all. That's right. Those dream sequences are remarkable, the way they're shot as well. I think he used uh, Steadicam, which had only just started being used, I think, after uh, John Carpenter and Kubrick used it. In the very early 80s, they used Steadicam for the first time, and I think they used it in this one as well. And it just, it gives those scenes a real eeriness. It reminded me an awful lot of the uh, the dream and fantasy sequences in Rosemary's Baby, because they feel very real, and they feel mm-hmm. like the kind of dreams that you have. It's, it's incredible the way they shot that, but it also includes one of the greatest jump scares I've ever seen when he's lying in the bed in the middle of the forest clearing. <laughs> and Jenny Agatha comes up to him and smiles at him, and then his face sort of pops open, and he's got the teeth and the eyes. It's terrifying. Oh, uh, God. Again, <laughs> imagine watching that in a cinema. Oh, yeah. You would, the entire theatre would have jumped. It would have been great. <laughs> These dreams, you know, they, they don't stay in the, the lovely forests. You know, the, the, it's not long before he starts dreaming about Nazi werewolves, terror, yes. you know, destroying his family and killing. Ugh. That's where you get, you get that very famous uh, dream sequence, which is two dreams in one. Where he wakes from the dream sequence where the, yeah. the sort of Nazi werewolf alien things with Uzis have massacred his entire family. And he wakes up and then Jenny Agutter says, oh, I'll, I'll get you something to calm you down. She opens the curtains in his room and another Nazi werewolf thing comes out and stabs her to death. I wonder if they'd seen that before they wrote Inception. A dream within a dream. <laughs> that, that, maybe. <laughs> And then um, Jack pops up again, telling him and it is a bit of exposition, but is um, yeah. you know you're the last remaining werewolf in this bloodline, and you have to be destroyed, you know, so that everyone can go off. And those who've already died, it must be horrendous, bad enough, but just being told, kill yourself, kill yourself. That's right. Yeah. I mean, that, that, I, that is it's a good point that he is essentially the the guy giving the exposition, but. At the same time, it's, it's it's wonderful character work as well because you still feel that sense that they were friends and they still have a rapport even though he's talking to a decomposing body. <laughs> uh, Jack still sort of manages the occasional wisecrack. I mean, I think he, that's another quote from the movie. He says, you ever talk to a corpse? It's boring. I'm lonely. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it works that well because... You know, it would be quite easy for David to kind of find this out on his own. But I think, you know, it is for our benefit but also yeah. it shows jack serves the purpose of both telling us the story but also his ongoing decay and, and everything That's else right, yeah. and, and also he is kind of preparing us for the fact that he is a werewolf and there is this impending that's issue right, that's yeah. coming up 
it's the ticking clock, isn't it? You know that you're going to see this guy change at some point, and he keeps sort of bringing it up. You're going to change. It's full moon tomorrow, all that sort of thing. Because I mean, uh, I think that the next few minutes of the film move along like something out of, well, I say Notting Hill. I think it was based in West London, but um, yes, David and Nurse they take a very, you know, I mean, she takes an awful shine to him, which um, I she suppose must does very quickly. I mean, it's normally their way round, isn't it? But uh, it is, yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, not that I've had long stays in hospital or anything, but I think, um, yeah, I'm sure for him, you know, he must have been going stir crazy and to have, oh, I, I find you very attractive, but yeah. Sam, that's, how how forward is that? It's, yeah, doesn't she say something like, I've had I've had four relationships in my life and two of those were one night stands or something. She says, she says yeah. something like that, straight, just straight to his face. He's yeah. Like, oh, God, <laughs> you lucky bastard. <laughs> <laughs> And of course, and of course, that leads to uh, one of the more famous sex scenes of the 1980s, which, yeah. uh, which from I've heard many, many reports from different sources on this that the videotapes tended to be a little bit worn out, and the tracking <laughs> went a bit off at that scene. Yes. All third-hand information, of course. But, uh... as, as far as I understand, yeah. You, <laughs> if, you, if you rented American Werewolf, the tracking always went a bit dodgy. There. It was kind of, <laughs> then again, VHS tape was like that, wasn't it? It was like having, uh, it was like an internet browser history before the internet. <laughs> it, it, it told people exactly what you were up to. Yeah, and it's always the same parts of each film. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Basic, I'm sure. Basic Instincts videotape was interesting as well. Oh, Christ. I, I mean, as an aside, I remember watching Basic Instinct for the first time, yeah. and and I mean, this isn't a sexy story in any way because yeah. I was on a football trip, and and bear in mind, I, so I would have been fourteen or fifteen, and. Okay. We're going to see an Arsenal game in France on a coach. So traveling from London to Paris by coach. And they'd run out of the usual football videos and someone somewhere just happened to have a VHS of Basic right. Instinct. And I think, and I, and I hadn't seen it, but I mean, the film had been out for a couple of years. So I guess, yeah. you know, and being one of the younger people there, you know, I'm sure most of the guys knew what was coming. And um, yeah, that was... Excuse that the was, pun. Well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> See, seeing that on a probably a 12 inch tv on a full coach full of pissed up arsenal yeah. fans that was an adventure it's uncomfortable <laughs> yeah i thought i thought my eyes were deceiving me but um <laughs> but it's funny that the first time i mentioned that i hadn't seen this before and um anita singh from i don't know from twitter she said to me oh well the jenny agatha scene in the shower that might yeah. be wasted wasted on you now <laughs> and I mean, bear in mind, you know, as I say, I'm pushing forward here. I mean, yeah. I, I'm no shame. I still, it was good. I mean, it's, hopefully, the, you know, hopefully the DVD won't be too worn out there. <laughs> God, thank God for Blu-ray is all I can say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't get this issue on Netflix, do you? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, I mean, it's interesting. Oddly enough, all joking aside, John Landis movies kind of for for, for my generation in particular. Because I, I mean, I'm again, I'm, I'm nearly pushing forty now myself, but I can remember. The videotapes. We had a lot of John Landis movies in our house. I think possibly his movies were maybe the first films to introduce the, just the notion of sex in films and nudity and stuff like that. Because I mean, it, it, he he was very fond of uh, female breasts in his movies, if I recall. Uh, I mean, there's, there, there's the very famous Trading Places shot. There, yeah, Jamie Lee Curtis. But, I mean, that movie has some really unusual uses of female nudity in it. They just sort of come out of nowhere in places. It's very strange. Bear in mind, one of the, I suppose, the, the, the parts of the final scene of the film is a porn film. 
yes, that was that's you right. know this isn't just a porn film that they've got the rights for and stick it in. This is mm. a porn film they actually made, they made for right. this. I mean, that is, that's planning on another level. Yeah, certainly, at that, at that at that porn movie is hilarious as well. He manages to sort of, and particularly because it's a British porn film, he manages to uh, capture that really the, the badly made sense of the British porn film. Certainly from the, the late seventies, early eighties. I, I I have to admit, I've never seen. <laughs> a British porn movie, but uh, I, it seems pretty spot on. You got the big, you got the big mustaches, you got the big curvy girl, <laughs> and the sex keeps getting interrupted by stupid little things like a random stranger walks into their room or a phone call. <laughs> I, I wonder if this the, the full version of that is available on one of the Blu-rays or something like that. I was wondering if they'd include that. There is an outtake from it in there on the okay. Blu-rays. There's a little deleted scene, but other than that, that would have been great if they could have included the whole thing, because I'm sure it was hilarious. But I mean, that's, that also included another uh, great John Landis in-joke. He was a big one for in-jokes, and the porno is called uh, See You Next Wednesday which is a recurring line in all of his work, and I believe comes from 2001 A Space Odyssey. But he's never explained why on earth that line appears in every movie that he's made. See you next Wednesday will appear somewhere in a John Landis picture. It's like an Easter egg you've got to hunt out. Yeah. It is, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what the significance is of it. I'm sure he knows, but uh, <laughs> if, you, if you look at any John Landis movie, somewhere in the background will be someone will either say it or it'll be on a poster or something. Oh, gonna have to hunt that down. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure. I'm sure Google will tell you that. <laughs> well, it's funny before, um, you know, before moving back to where we were. I mean, that's one thing I did notice when I saw the credits, and they had the names of the actors who were in this porn film, and yes. I didn't. I don't know how. I must have read this somewhere. That the the woman, yes. the main sort of, she was the mum of the oldest kid from Outnumbered. Who's dad? Right? Whose dad is the legendary Bendover? Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So that there's like there's like a family lineage into that. There is, um, and I, I think I, I mean I read it. And it must have been, and they said that you know his parents were porn stars, and I thought this was always one of these like urban legends or something like that. But um, right. yeah, apparently his parents were this woman. What was her name? Brenda Bre- uh, Bristols. Bren- Brenda Bristols, and um, <laughs> and uh, Bendover. Which, yeah. <laughs> oh my. Yes. That, that, that would be a t- that would be a tough parents evening. <laughs> coming com- coming next on outnumbered. <laughs> yes. the, now the nine o'clock watershed is passed. <laughs> so after Jack and the nurse have their little cozy love affair, it's all very cute and romantic. The doctor, who's very sort of straight British upper upper lip yes, and all that. Yeah. Um, he's decided he wants to investigate because um, it's all you know. He's heard these. David's mentioned that he's a werewolf, and there's there's a lot of curiosity about how it actually happened because mm. um, he was told when he was brought in that oh no, you're just attacked by a madman. But he goes off to investigate. I mean, I guess you know back in the early eighties, the doctors on the NHS probably had a bit more time in their hands. A little to, bit, yeah. yeah drive off yeah. up to Yorkshire and have well, not even half a Guinness, and then drive back <laughs> down again. A sip of Guinness and uh, get shouted at by uh, yeah. Brian Glover. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean that bit was brilliant. I mean, he's he's obviously there, and and there's as much acting with the people in the pub with their eyes and the sort of side That's eyes, right, and yeah. you know, not not a huge amount is said, but it's just that sort of no, all right, look, look, look. That's right. And you got David Schofield is waiting for him outside in the rain, and he's he's all panicked, and he feels somewhat guilty. 
about yeah. uh, about David and uh, is telling him, look, he's going to change. It's almost full moon. And then you got Brian Glover just screams out, that's enough. <laughs> it's almost full moon. He'll change. He'll... That's enough. That's enough. Which, you know, if Brian Glover shouts, that's enough at you, you shut the fuck up. That's remarkable as well, because, I mean, that, that could play so, so funny. You could just play that as a comedy scene, but you buy it completely, and there's something incredibly sinister about it. And the idea the, these this little village, this little townsfolk have sort of been trying to cover this up and keep it quiet as much as they could is fantastic. You almost feel like it's a little village of the damned. Like, these guys, these people will never leave that little village. Like werewolf central. Yeah, it's, it's it's terrific stuff, and it's very British as well. Because <laughs> it's always raining. That's right. It, 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 American wealth is a great view of British life as lived by most people at that time. I mean, like it's an American's point of view of it, which I think probably makes it work even better. And that's probably what makes the humour work better. I can, I'd, like there's a there's a scene where David is bored in Jenny Agutter's flat, and he turns on the television. And of course, in 1981, there were only three channels. So he clips through the three channels and quickly gets bored again. And he wanders outside and there's nothing to do and it's cold and it's dreary and he goes back inside and I think he ends up just reading a book. It's funny when you sort of bring that into the modern time that that could still easily work. I mean, you know, you hear all these you know jokes and, and that about how you know we now have access to 500 channels and yet can still be bored. We'll, That's we'll, right. Yeah. We'll always go back to watching Robocop rather than That's anything right. else. How many times do you flick through Netflix for about half an hour looking for something and then you just settle back on? last action hero or what have you <laughs> <laughs> don't i watched that on netflix last month oh did you really <laughs> yeah we, we we have a little um we have a telly at work that we watch when we work nights and um <laughs> we can get netflix on it and it was just kind of like right what do we watch and i think by the time we'd exhausted clint eastwood's back catalogue it was kind of <laughs> uh should we watch last action hero and get it done <laughs> i like last action hero it was amusing. I'd say it was the it's first time I'd seen funny. it in a while. Yeah, um, yeah. I think what we watched a bit of Alan Partridge after that, which kind of lifted the mood. Right. But, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, <laughs> that's the thing. I think even now with all the streams and everything else, it's still easy for people to get bored. Although now they have Candy Crush on their phones, or they well, can that's go and... the thing, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing that kind of has killed the modern horror movie and the modern thriller is the idea that mobile phones help is always so accessible. Yeah. And that's that's probably why we see the horror movies of today are going back to being kind of retro or setting them a little earlier and it's to get rid of that safety net which now is the modern world because everything's connected we're not we're not particularly connected as human beings to each other but we're, we're connected via that form of communication which means if there was ever anything wrong or you're being chased or stalked or something horrific's happening you can reach out to help very well, easily or you could at least do the the trope of just saying oh no signal <laughs> no, well, there you go. I suppose yeah. that works. <laughs> yeah, or, or if it's my phone, the battery's always bloody dead. So. <laughs> Have you got an iPhone? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, if you could just extend the battery life by not having it on all the time. But, uh, yes, hey ho. <laughs> but as you say, this is the part where, as um, David's at home and he's bored, and Alex nurses at work with the most annoying fucking kid in the, the world. Kid. <laughs> But then I, I can't say annoying too much because that is my oldest daughter. She's in that phase at the moment. She's nearly, oh really? She, I mean, she's coming up to three, but everything's no, no. Yeah. Well, my daughter's yeah. seven, and she's it's everything's why, why, okay, why, 
But um, there's a full moon, he's bored, he's at home, Alex is at work, and this is the transformation scene that makes Teen Wolf look like something out of Teletubbies. I mean, how they managed to get him to look like Richard Keyes. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's a, there's a great uh, bit on the uh, Blu-ray documentary about how they put all that together. There's a few behind-the-scenes bits about the little trickery they did like there were a little there were there was a little hole in the floor that you could crawl into so most of his body was a, a puppet and reversing the film so that when the hair is coming out it's actually hair being pulled back in and it's, it's incredible it's an all in camera no digital effects whatsoever and it still works so you, you buy it completely and again a lot of that comes down I think to David Norton's performance he is screaming in agony it's the first werewolf transformation there's a, there's this kind of in the Lon Chaney Wolfman movies and all those sort of things uh, there was a stateliness and a quiet to the way they would transform it would just be a dissolve they'd stand still and dissolve and uh, Landis really goes for the idea that like, no if you were tr- if you were physically transforming into some other creature your bones are contorting your muscles would be ripped to pieces it, it would hurt and and he he completely sells that to you with the genius of Rick Baker's uh, makeup oh, which I believe I believe that makeup inspired uh, the academy the Oscars to do a best makeup award and it was the first winner of the first makeup award it's funny because I mean we're recording this a couple of days after the Oscars and yes, that's right. I, yeah. I went through all the podcasts I'd done up till now and I'd looked and I mean maybe this just says a lot about the films that I like and do podcasts about the only one that I'd done previously that had won an Oscar for anything mm. was Beetlejuice which also won for best makeup oh is that right? yeah and the, and, yeah, and, the, and this one actually inspired it I mean that is that's some pretty good going if your work is that good yes, to, to force the academy to kind of go right we need to do something about this and, and well deserved as well I mean it, oh, yeah. w- without that transformation I don't think that film would have been as memorable I think I mean I, I still think it would have been a great film if the transformation wasn't nearly as vivid as that but it kind of takes it to another level because it, there's a realism to it and that's what the film is constantly toing and froing between realism and fantasy, and it's a, and I mean you you think about the concept of just the, the Wolfman myth, it is ridiculous. But to have to have the audience in the palm of your hands like that is incredible. As I say, it's it's kind of like it's the Jaws mentality, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean Spielberg's Jaws. The idea behind that is is kind of ludicrous, but you completely buy it because you've got natural, realistic performances. It's it's shot very matter of factly, and you completely buy it. But I suppose it plays on fears as much as anything else. Um, yeah. As you say, it's the performance and, and the special effects that make it. You know, when I was younger and I suppose a lot of what I would have seen of, of a transformation would have been something stupid like Bill Bixby turning into Lou Ferrigno in The Incredible Hulk or something sure, like that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the only pain he went through was having to buy new trousers every time he got angry. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and even now you sort of think about stuff where people transform or and there's very little that you see and admittedly I'm, I'm not a fan not necessarily for choice just I've never seen a lot but you know horror films and that mm. where part of the horror is what it does to the person that's right um, yeah you know and, and I mean oh just watching his like feet and lit, ugh, fucking hell. yeah the, ha- the hands extending and all that sort of thing it's incredible I mean I watched this with my dog um, and I was kind of <laughs> 
and he, I mean, he was kind of lying next to me. Just he wasn't really. In, he was a bit nonplus, but um, yeah. yeah, I was kind of thinking. I mean, he's he's quite a big dog, but he, I mean, the, the transformation I'd have to go through to become a, a sort of seven stone Labrador. I don't know. I'd have to lose lose about half my body weight. Yeah. I thought you were going to say that the dog freaked out. That would have been amazing. It would have been, but um, to be honest, he just likes to sleep. I think he was just oh, happy. The, the kids were in bed and he had me to himself. I think he was happy. <laughs> but, I mean, we're, we're already about an hour into the film when yeah. this happens. You know, we've had a lot of build-up to this. Obviously, as you said earlier, the, the ticking clock, because we knew this was going to happen. Yes. Um, I mean, how he does it, of course, he has to go on some sort of murderous rampage of some sort, but it's still done with humour. It is. Um, right, we have yeah. kind of three scenes, three small scenes where we have the couple at the dinner party. That's right. Oh, the, 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 the most sort of British couple <laughs> you've ever met in your life. It's like something out of a sketch show. It is very much so, yeah. And they're like, oh, let's go around the back. We'll give George a scare. All that sort of thing. <laughs> and, and of course, one of them sees him out the window, so they've got to go and investigate, and it's all just. Great. Oh, I'm that's a... right. It's the, the wife is looking out the window and says, George, there's those hooligans in the park again. <laughs> <laughs> the sort of people who live in, probably lived in West London in the early yes. 80s, they were probably the sort of people who did call others hooligans. And that, and that, and the the park was probably the private park of, of that block of houses. That was probably the one <laughs> from Notting Hill where they go and sit on that bloody bench. It could have been. Yeah. Now, there's, like... a, there's a crossover that would have been interesting. An American werewolf in Notting Hill. <laughs> And of course, I mean that that uh, that first uh, kill rampage also has one of the the, the very famous the tube scene, yeah. which uh, was really scary and also very funny because this the the, the gentleman that uh, gets attacked is again it's that very sort of like stuffy upper class British. He hears the the growl in the tube and he thinks it's somebody messing around. I can assure you that this is not in the least bit amusing. I shall report this. I mean, it's funny because, you know, looking back, and, and this is something that, I mean, I've I've always lived in London, so, you know, I remember-ish, you know, that, that because that, um, I think that was Tottenham Court Road Station was, on, yeah. on the Northern Line. Last, last time I was in London, I took a photograph of it because I'm ah. a massive nerd. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, you know, when and, and there was a part on the tube earlier on when David was pulling all those faces next to the guys in the, the, the punk sort of do. But it's funny watching it now, you know, coming back, back to it now when you know normally now if you see someone or hear someone making those noises on the tube at yeah. late at night you think oh, jesus here we go it's gonna it's <laughs> gonna be someone wanting to make a conversation or absolutely you know someone with mental health issues but, um and even <laughs> and even more dated was the fact there was a vending machine on the platform that's right there was yeah which yeah. would have been which would be kicked to smithereens today oh yeah wouldn't that? i mean <laughs> bear in mind you can't even they don't even have bins on them at the moment no that's right isn't that isn't that something to do with bomb threats and things like that They're not yeah anymore. i think some of them they have clear plastic bags but um yeah. this shows some of my stupidity that I, i'm struggling to think of many films that feature and and this is part hopefully something i'll expand on in future episodes where they show like the tube in the 80s yeah. because the only other one i could think of off the top of my head on the uk on the london tube network was superman 4 um, yes, yeah, where he flies through to save yeah, the, the railway train, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and that, that was a London tube as well. So, um, That's right, it was. The, the, the horrors of the Northern Line, you know, werewolves and Superman 4. One thing, and, and another thing that um, I noticed that links this to a previous episode, and in fact the previous episode, because um, Airplane will have been out by now, there was a poster for Airplane on 
the wall of the tube station as oh, he's been really? chased I, yeah. I didn't catch that. Ah, okay. And and airplane was scored by Elmer Bernstein, who that's did right score for this as well. So yeah, I, I did want to speak a little bit about Elmer Bernstein. His music is uh, is quite a remarkable counterpoint to the kind of the comedy aspect of the film. Uh, I mean, this this is a very classy uh, film composer. He did like To Kill a Mockingbird, but when John Landis got hold of him, I mean, he got this very classic film composer to compose Animal House, and he did a great comic score, and uh, and he utilizes uh, a theremin, I think, in this one as well, uh, which they, was very re- most recently used in uh, the First Man score. I think they used a theremin as well. Okay, uh, and he did it in the Ghostbusters score as well. I mean, it's amazing how gone. I mean, he did Animal House and Airplane yeah. and American Werewolf in London. I mean, his music I, I read wasn't actually in this an awful lot because the the soundtrack of this was mo- well completely made up of songs that had the word "moon" in the title. That's right. Yeah, it's all there. You've got uh, was it like Van Morrison and Sam Cooke and stuff yeah, like that? Blue Moon and everything. I mean, it's, I mean, just little things like that are you know they work so well. They do, yeah. And I mean, his score. I suppose I suppose I noticed it most in in the final scene really there's a there's a lovely there's a lovely piano riff that he does whenever they're walking down the hill towards east proctor at the beginning which it, it sounds like every sort of classic 70s and 80s horror movie the, the way it's scored it's, it's just wonderful and it it gives you this kind of foreboding feeling that all's not what it seems it's it's, mm. it's terrific it's a great piece of show. that's a soundtrack that with all these uh soundtracks being re-released on vinyl i'm amazed that that hasn't uh, had its day yet i'd imagine that somebody down the line will be re-releasing that because i don't think you can get it commercially i think you can get it on youtube but that's about it i mean hopefully some of these will come out because you know there there seems to be as much with the revival of vinyl a first for these scores and soundtracks and i suppose everyone will always be digging up old sort of master tapes and everything you sort of right yeah you would hope they'd pop up you know i mean not everyone likes listening to music on youtube yes Uh, (laughs) i certainly don't no i mean my youtube history used to be one thing and now with the kids it's fucking little baby this and pepper (laughs) david wakes up and this is something that i suppose anyone who's had a few beers can always relate to wakes up in the wolf pit at london zoo it's happened to all of us yeah, I mean it's it's a rite of passage, really, isn't it? And um, <laughs> you you wake up in London Zoo and you know running running around naked, stealing a kid's balloons. <laughs> a naked American man stole my balloons. Which again, it, it brings it back from this five minutes of these horrific attacks. It brings it right back into this almost Carry On esque humour for for a for a good ten minutes. Yeah, a, a uh, naked American man stole my balloons. That's and then right, the... a dreaded balloon thief. Yeah, and then the part where he's waiting for the bus. Yeah, with the red coat on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all all while this is happening, it's sort of got out in the papers that six people have died in these attacks, and the doctor of the hospital is in is you know still doing his best to investigate. Alex has been at work, and they're all worried because I've I mean they know it's David, and David sort of returns home or back to Alex's flat, and he's all very sort of happy and chirpy and yeah he's you, kind of got a, an adrenaline rush hasn't he yeah yeah you know a, a sort of bloodlust really you know he's yeah, turned up right. and he's I've killed all these people and I feel great you know <laughs> like yeah, it's like yeah, was it murders they say murders the greatest aphrodisiac in the world so he's he's all over Jenny Agatha trying to get her back into bed that's right <laughs> I've just killed six people I've got the fucking <laughs> I've got the fucking on. <laughs> 
moments of a quickie. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she says that at one point. <laughs> he does, yeah. Let's go back to yours for a quickie. And then he gets in a taxi with, I don't know if you noticed this, but the taxi driver that talks to him is Alan Ford, who played Brick Brick Top. Top. (laughs) (laughs) He's all like, it reminds me of Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Even then, I mean, I, you know, I know a lot of people have issues with Snatch and Guy Ritchie films and stuff, but I mean, Brick Top was brilliant. He's terrific. I mean, I, I, I like Lock, Stock and Snatch very much. I think they're very fun. And, and just sort of hearing his voice immediately kind of made me think, wait, that sounds like, and then he's turned around and it's big top without the glasses, but um, he still looks exactly the same. It's that voice is just terrific. He's got that distinctive voice, uh, a bit like Ray Winston or something like that. You know immediately who it is. You know, most of the things I've seen him in in the last 10, 15 years have been very similar. Um, There was, I mean, he was even in, I think he was in Toast of London as a cab driver in one of the episodes in there. And then um, Cockneys versus Zombies. Oh, that that one, yeah, that's a classic. Yeah, Brick Top and Richard. I mean, wasn't that Richard Breyer's last film? Because it's at this point when he starts talking about the the dead people that David realizes it's it's, it's him. Hell, um, yeah. And of course, the cab the cab just happens to drive past Trafalgar Square where he jumps out because everything right. everything happens in Trafalgar Square. His attempts to be arrested yes. are quite ludicrous because I mean the cops in the eighties. I mean, while they were probably more busy trying to sort out minors and things like that um the public order act hadn't come in until 1986 (laughs) so uh i mean yeah i i i I took the liberty of writing down some of the stuff that he screams out to try and uh (laughs) to try and get arrested my favorite one is shakespeare's french (laughs) but also churchill was full of shit (laughs) topical uh queen elizabeth is a man And, um, and uh, he says something about Prince Charles, but maybe we shouldn't say that on the podcast. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, <laughs> yeah, but of course they they had to write that off at the end because uh, that was the same year as the wedding the to wedding, Diana, wasn't that's it? Right. And then they mentioned that in the credits. I think something about um, oh, con- congratulations to the uh, to Lady Prince Di. Charles. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, that went that went well. They clearly weren't working on arrest figures or anything like that. I mean, I know oh. it's difficult working in Trafalgar Square when all all you do is give directions to people and have photographs taken with tourists but um you know surely i mean it looked like a pretty miserable day that it's day one basic policing if it's a grim miserable day a good policeman never gets wet arrest someone get in have a cup of tea especially trafalgar square so you know he decides that rather than try and get himself further arrested for anything he calls home calls america and then goes off and sees a porn film Yes, as, again, as as we all do when we're depressed. Yeah, I mean, I suppose again, this this shows that um, this isn't something you just whip up on your smartphone. You've actually got to go and pay. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I I also loved the fact that uh, he, he went up to the counter. He says, "How much is it?" And I think she said something like two pounds eighty, sir. People paying two pound eighty to go and watch See You Next Wednesday. <laughs> See Brenda Bristol's. To be fair, obviously it's probably in in quite high demand now. So uh, yeah, you know, <laughs> put that on at the BFI. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so he's in the porn film in the porn theater and um he starts talking to jack which yeah. must be really off-putting to the people who was there just to you know sit down and watch a film in peace Absolutely. and he's he's talking to a corpse and the various people he'd killed yeah the victims that's right who look really grisly i mean jack jack's not decomposing well no <laughs> and the rest of them are absolutely covered in blood <laughs> yeah except except the, the 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 couple the first ones that get killed are still very pleasant to him so oh yeah just put, <laughs> put, a, gun, put a gun to your head yeah. <laughs> he goes through the change again goes yeah. for the change makes it sound like he's going through the menopause um but he Metaphor. 
he goes for this change in the porn film, which again must have sounded really odd if you're in there and hearing this bloke sort of crunching and grunting and screaming, is uh, finding it particularly challenging. Um, and well, then go- although to be fair, I, I've I've never I've never sat in a porno theatre, so I'm not sure if those noises would be normal or not. I'm not sure. I don't know. P- people have their processes, don't they? I suppose it might be off-putting to some. <laughs> It's not like the bit in, was that the 40-year-old virgin where he lights a candle and puts his nice pyjamas on? That's right. Else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sit in a grubby hotel, uh, <laughs> grubby cinema in Piccadilly Circus. It must have been filthy, that cinema. It's awful. Oh, imagine mopping those floors. Good. Um, <laughs> moving on, moving on. <laughs> so he starts um, killing everyone as, as he does in... You know, are, are the patrons of that cinema the sort of thing that you'd want to eat? I don't know. Um, Probably not. But uh, that that it, le- it leads into uh, one of uh, the sort of signature John Landis things, which is just like car carnage and crowds of people screaming, and nobody really films uh, carnage quite like John Landis. No, I mean watching that was it was funny, you know, yeah. and I guess that was part of it. But um, you know, he's come out into the middle of Piccadilly Circus after the cops have tried to barricade him into the cinema, right. um, bursts out and just causes all these. And I suppose and the funny thing is, and it looks better because they're cars from that era, yes. whereas the cars now are so safe and well-designed. I mean, these That's cars right, like yeah. properly like concertina on people. and, and it, Yeah, slamming into people. It's really violent. I mean, it's yeah. horribly violent. And people getting run over and getting chucked through windows. And I mean, the, the fact that they filmed that, I mean, I did a little bit of research into that. And from what I understand, Landis had managed to make a deal with the Metropolitan Police to get uh, two nights worth of filming there and they had like three or four minute windows where the police would stop traffic for them in order to get these shots but to to do all of that incredibly intricate orchestrated stunt work on the fly like that is incredible I mean it was so well done and Mm -hmm. and again I just think that that looks better because of how it was done but I mean it must have been you know some of the close-ups you know people actually getting crushed by the cars yeah yeah absolutely crazy and again he's very smart in the way he shoots uh, the werewolf as well because the actual werewolf puppet itself does look fairly ridiculous but he does he does what spielberg did with jaws once again to go back to that he doesn't show a huge amount of it and what no. you do see is really scary it's cleverly done and another thing, sort of looking at the posters and the, and the big Piccadilly Circus sign of the time, you know, it was yeah. big adverts for Skull and, and that. That's but right. um, yes, it was a different a... time. <laughs> <laughs> but then Alex arrives. I suppose what what we're kind of hoping for is a scene where you know she, he recognises her. You know, the army have turned up with all their guns and they've got him cornered in this alleyway, and she arrives. And um, I think any hopes of a happy ending <laughs> that's right yeah it's it, it it ends on a really sort of bittersweet note for the two of them and as as it probably should and i mean i also when i see uh, the ending of american werewolf it always reminds me uh of the ending of uh, the david cronenberg movie the fly it's a mm. similar sort of arc that, that those characters have falling in love at the wrong time really you know one jarring thing is the fact that because he's shot um and he dies you know he's there's no transformation back. He doesn't die. Well, no slow transformation back. He doesn't yeah. die as the werewolf. You know, it cuts instantly to him as human David. That's right, with, yeah. With bullet holes. Um, yeah. It's so sad. It's really sad. And Jenny Agutter sells it as well. Her face is just beautiful in that moment when she starts to cry. And, 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 and then, of course, it, and it just cuts to black. That's it. It's over. 
<laughs> it's a, a great. There's no messing about. There's no extra scene at the end to give you any kind of like hope or resolution. Really, it's just that's it. Story's done. Yeah, all fi- no filler. It's just no, fi- no, and that's that. That movie clips along at some pace. It really does, and every single scene uh, is driving the story forward in some way. It, it, it's the the storytelling economy is really, really fantastic in that movie. And and I think this is something that you know touched on in in other episodes as well. That um, you know, the running time for the film was about an hour and thirty three, yeah. something like that. You know, so lean that you don't need to pad it out anymore. No, um, not at all. You know, you don't need to drag it out. And the fact that you know the werewolf doesn't get a huge amount of screen time, but when it does, again, like you know, a lot of other films, yeah. it just needs to be impactful and and having it spread out, having more of it, you know, to justify whether it's the cost or whatever. That's it's, right almost defeat the purpose i mean it's interesting you look at uh i'm not sure if you're even aware this movie exists but maybe from your research it was that they did make a sequel to this movie called an american werewolf in paris in 1997 I, I uh, of it, yeah. and it it is absolutely dreadful i wouldn't even bother as a curiosity to look at it it's dreadful it's um, uh, and, and it's all cgi and it's and it's bad cgi at that it's uh, oh terrible how how closely linked are they they are linked only through i mean the film stars a guy called tom everett scott who i think was in that tom hanks movie that thing you do he was the main guy in that and for a while for a while there he was going to be in the next big thing and then nothing happened but uh in fact i think i saw him in la la land recently um but uh it's jenny agatha's daughter uh for some reason played by julie delpy i can't remember what the link was there but it's jenny agatha's daughter carries the bloodline and I'm guessing she was supposed to be the baby that was made by David and and Jenny Agar's character in the first movie. Right. That's the link. It's terrible. It's awful. There's a bit. There's a, there's a sequence where they're bungee jumping off of the Eiffel Tower. That's how bad that movie is. It's terrible. I, I suppose in the early '80s it would have been before AIDS and all that. So of course, yeah. safe sex wouldn't have been the top of the list. So I suppose no. in theory she could have been pregnant, but that's just. Oh god, it's terrible. But it's it, it's 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 the night and day of uh, the original and uh, the sequel in that the, it learns nothing from the original whatsoever. It doesn't seem to have any regard for the original. It's just a hackneyed, badly made movie, uh, and well worth avoiding for anybody. <laughs> oh joy! I will uh, yeah keep that one off the list anyway. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, I mean that that was the film, and as you say it. I mean, I enjoyed it so much, and I think you know, come away from it. Or, you know, obviously the, the the usual part of me that goes, "Oh, why didn't I say this earlier?" But again, it's you know, coming back and, and enjoying it that much more now. Yeah, I can see why people call it their favorite film. I can see why people love it so much, and hopefully, the sequel will have killed off any plans to reboot it or remake yeah, well, it. Or from like what that. I oddly enough, from what I understand, John Landis's son Max Landis is working on uh, a remake of it. But uh, we'll see what happens. I think that's a terrible idea, but you know, some Money. remakes work. The thing, I suppose. Yeah, oh, that's God. that's really the only one I can think of. <laughs> oh, well, on that bombshell. Yes, <laughs> Chris, thank you very much for bringing this video or Betamax or DVD or Blu-ray, or whatever. Um, My pleasure. <laughs> and um, and as you said, um, you know, it's been a, a while in the making, so. Um, thank you for actually sticking with it and uh... no not at all well see i listen to the podcast anyway i subscribe to it on itunes and uh, i also advise everybody else to do the same okay. uh but uh no I, I love the show i just 
because it's our generation it's the movies we grew up with it, it's right up my alley lovely well thank you for that and um we did mention at the top of the show that you also um dabble in a bit of film writing yourself and I do, um, yes yeah, yeah. I, I, i'm a film critic for uh, film inquiry and uh, flick feast and a few others uh and i do articles and i do interviews i do this uh, interview series called the female gaze which is looking at uh women in cinema and talking to women from every sort of facet of the filmmaking process uh so i've been working on that uh, over at flick feast for the last year or so uh and uh, and i've written a couple of books as well oh tell us about those uh well they're not film related uh, the, the first one is a book called peer pressure it's a it's a novel it's a romantic comedy i guess you could put it sort of in the sort of Nick Hornby category of romantic comedies, that kind of tone. Uh, and I've got a, a poetry collection called Onlines, which are both available uh, on Amazon. I'll link to those on the show notes, but I suppose it, um, you're going to be pushing for a, a peer pressure movie? Um, you know what? It started off as a screenplay and then it became a book, so I'm not sure if I could turn it back that way, but uh, you never know. But uh, if anyone's listening, um, <laughs> I'll give it a shot. Well, um, yeah, and if, if you set it in the 80s, um, that gives me the excuse to do a podcast I'd about love, it. Well. I'd love to set it in the 80s, that'd be great. <laughs> yeah, it'd be all uh, Walkmans and no mobile phones. So oh, that's nice. a great time. <laughs> Glory days. Kids just don't know. Kids don't know. <laughs> well, um, in a couple of minutes, we'll have to bring us back to reality. But um, what I normally do is play out the podcast with a song that was number one in the UK at the time right. of the film's release. Now, this film was released in the uk on the 12th of november 1981 mm -hmm. and the number one song was it's my party by dave stewart and barbara gaskin Goodness, yes and any excuse any excuse <laughs> chris thank you very much for coming along thank you nice for having me. and i'll speak to you soon cheers This podcast was brought to you by executive producers Gary West, Fergus Higginson and Keith Foster and associate producer Chris Oakley. For more information, please visit patreon.com forward slash Betamax Video Club.